Um, we're going to be speaking a little bit about addiction. This is going to be the text that we're at. Um, uh, eventually, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, it is on page, um, or if you're using the, the, the Pew Bibles, um, it is on page 960. Uh, so if you want to kind of get ready for that, this is a little bit of a two-part sermon. The first part, I kind of want to make my case. Uh, and the second part, I want to apply my case. This is, uh, as I said, the beginning earlier, uh, uh, kicking off the, the, uh, the service. This is Holy Week, or the beginning of Holy Week. The triumphal entry uh, today, the palm branches, all of that. We receive this uh, story about Jesus entering in Jerusalem as a triumphant king uh, in all of the Gospels. And here it is. I, I'd encourage you to write these down or to just go on Bible Gateway or somewhere on the Internet and, and look them up and read these texts this week. And all of these texts will tell us uh, the story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And, and if you read through the whole of, of any of the Gospels, it's sort of just this breakneck pace. All of this is crammed into to a few years of Jesus just traveling about and teaching and preaching and, and, and exercising demons and, and healing and raising and uh, all of this being opposed by forces of evil, both spiritual and physical. And this, there, there's this point in all the Gospels where it says something alike. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He's, he's going to Jerusalem. And there's this kind of like this moment of, is it dread or is it excitement? What, what, what should we expect or what should we feel? And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, at this moment, on this Sunday, it is a declaration of his kingship. He is attaching himself in this prophetic sinek, riding in uh, to Jerusalem on a donkey, to a text uh, from Ephesians which doesn't say anything about this. But it talks about the king coming into Jerusalem. And if you had a king come into Jerusalem to free Jerusalem, to set it free, what kind of thing would you expect him to ride in on? Because the prophet says he rides in on a donkey, which is my, we, uh, the closest thing I could think of and Paul could think of was a smart car. If you're going to save, and that's what the prophecy says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Now, salvation, a lot of times we think of as a future thing. This is something that's going to happen later on. And that's true. That is true. There's a futureness to salvation. But right now, today, is there something you're wrestling with that you need salvation from? To be saved can be a very literal and present tense need. That we all have. To be set free from something that is weighing us down, shackling us, changing, chaining us, enslaving us to its power. Whether it's an addiction, a person, a situation. We all brought baggage in here this morning. But if you are going to display the power of salvation... Are you going to do it riding to town on this? Or would you ride to town on something more like this? Because when I think of saving a city, I think more, you know, tankish than smart carish. 
And so what's interesting about this whole scene of Jesus coming in to Jerusalem and everybody's lining up and they're waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks before him and, he's, and they're, they're celebrating, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes in God's own power. Some of the texts that you, that you read say he's the son of David, attaching him to the kingship of the ancient Davidic crown. The king who was the greatest of their kings, David. And here comes Jesus, and he's riding on a donkey. Imagine you're a Roman soldier, or just a Roman in general. You'd be thinking, these people are bonkers. This is crazy, because this does not look like salvation. This does. And so it's a very strange thing that's happening in this text. But what we see in Jesus coming like this and not this is God stretching out his hand in mercy. God could have sent Jesus like this, and the wicked would perish. But instead of sending Jesus like this, instead of using the fist, as it were, he reaches out his hand, nail-pierced, in grace and in mercy, calling us to see the love And the salvation that can be brought about only through the grace of God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't mean, and here we have to be very careful, because our society likes to think of Jesus always like this, like hippie Jesus, right? But Jesus is coming again, and in his coming is a new salvation, and that salvation is the destruction of the wicked, and is the resurrection and uh, 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 life salvation, life-giving power for the righteous. God is coming to bring the fist, but right now there is a brief moment A window of opportunity where God pleads with his creation to see Jesus and to respond to his grace. This week we think of other ancient prophecies. Um, Boy, I am all messed up. What is going on here? Are you doing that or am I? Okay. I'm all messed up, guys. I'm sorry. Anyway, this is a prophecy from Zechariah. We think of a prophecy um, perhaps from Isaiah where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed We all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. These are ancient words, words that uh, probably you have heard before, hopefully you have heard before. These are prophecies, glimpses of God and his power. And if we can telescope that forward and, and think from Isaiah all the way to Jesus and all the way into today about God's salvation through the death of the Son, the reason for all of that is our iniquities, is our sins. We talked Wednesday about addiction and its power over our lives. Addiction is, at its core, disordered desires. 
And, and I think all of us here today, many of you are probably not heroin addicts. And so when I say addiction, you sort of maybe think of something like that. But addiction is a disordered desire that you compulsively do. Have you ever said to yourself, why in the world do I keep doing this? Right? That is, in a sense, addiction. A small to large version. Obviously, it's scalable. We allow, whether we're talking about something like heroin or we're talking about something like food or rest or work or sex or entertainment, any of those things could be taken outside of God's boundaries and become our obsession. It's the thing that we think about. The first thing that pops into your mind, what, what, what is driving you? What is ruling over you? Is it your desires built around the scriptures or is it outside of your control? Are you compulsory in your actions so that when you're angry or frustrated or sad or ang- or happy, if you've had a good day, you want to celebrate it with a bottle and when you've had a bad day, you need the comfort from the bottle. That tells us something, doesn't it? And you could replace the bottle with anything, anything that you want. Perhaps it is a relationship itself. Are you finding your fulfillment in some other person? Teenage girls, I remember all the time, right, running into this problem. Teenage boys as well. We're constantly looking for our fixation, our happiness in something other than God. And that, in turn, can become something of an addiction. And what makes what you're doing this morning bizarre What makes it strange in our world today is that the church is the last place in American society that will constantly encourage you towards purity. Name another place that you can go that isn't crude, that isn't coarse, that is calling you to be better than you are. To be holier than you are. To be purer than you are. That's what makes sort of church just a bizarre thing in American society. And when American society sort of looks at us, they see us like Angela from The Office. I don't know if you watch The Office. This is Laura and my uh, junk TV. If you're folding laundry and you don't want to think... Uh, this is something we turn on, and it, you don't need to watch the show, but in the, in the show, she is the Christian in the office, and she is just a terrible person, awful person. She is a judgmental shrew who constantly holds people to purity while she herself is constantly acting impure. This is how society sees us, and guess what? If I wasn't a hypocrite, I wouldn't need to be in church. I could be jogging with the rest of the perfect people out there this morning. right? As Rich Mullins says. Let's acknowledge the fact that we often are blinded to our own sins while finding it very easy to see the sins in others. I seem to remember Jesus talking about that. right? This is a true thing. And so if somebody comes at you and accuses you, well, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Yes, that's why we need Jesus. And it's not as though we should find permission in that. Well, yes, and so it's fine for me to be Angela. No, it's not. But we recognize the fact that we are all, every single one of us, in a wrestling match against our desires and against our desire and need to be pure, to be holy, to drive after that. The Bible, Christianity, 
They have an answer for this. We have an answer for this. Why are we constantly sucked into compulsory behavior? Why are we always asking the question, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep making the same mistake over and over? Why do I keep falling into the same relationship even though I know it's terrible? Why do I keep going back to this substance constantly? Why do I keep going to these websites that I know are are, are impure and nasty? Why do I constantly fall back into this? It is because we have a tendency to be mastered by our desires. This is one of my favorite texts. It's one of the texts that I I often go to, and you've probably heard me quote it before. It's one of the first verses that I memorized as a teenager when I was in the midst of, and still am in some places, in the midst of wrestling against sin. And there's this story early on in Genesis where Cain, as you might remember, is the son of Adam and Eve, and one of the sons of Adam and Eve, and he offers a sacrifice. And we're not sure all of the details, but for whatever reason, it's an impure, it's, it's not good enough. It doesn't meet God's set standard, and so God doesn't accept it. He doesn't reject Cain. He doesn't say, well, I'm done with you, Cain. He doesn't smite Cain. He doesn't do anything like that. He just doesn't accept the sacrifice because it's impure. And Cain gets angry at God, and, says, and so he's stewing in his, in his anger. And God says, why are you mad? If you do what is good, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is good, if you practice evil, if you do something that's wrong, then evil is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. To me, there's two very important points in this sentence. First, it identifies sin as what it is. And we can love, sin is the Christian word for anything that is outside of God's boundaries. So all addictions fall into that, as do other things as well, right? So that, 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 that's, that's important. And this, this is a, the truth that we have here, that sin is not just our moral errors, but itself has will and desire. And its will and desire is to grab a hold of you so that you are constantly making the same mistake again and again and again. Its desire is to rule you. So if you ask the question, why do I keep doing this? That is the reason sin has mastered you. And the corollary here God gives us is this but you must rule over it. And yet, if you're anything like me, you have found this a difficult thing indeed. Perhaps even impossible, since you are asking the question, like me, why in the world do I keep doing this? That's what brings us forward to Holy Week. Because God recognizes in a moment, that moment on the cross, those three quiet, dark days of Jesus' death and then his resurrection that you can't. And so God has a solution for sin in the death of Jesus, but also a solution in making it possible for us to break the chains of sin, to break the chains of addiction, not through our own effort and power, but through the power of our cooperation with the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what I want to try to convince you about this morning. You ought to notice how often, and maybe just go into Bible Gateway or whatever search engine you might use, and type in freedom and see how often the Bible talks about freedom, how important freedom is to the scriptures. 
because it's very important. Oftentimes when I use this word, though, we might think that there is, a, there is an odd uh, uh, tension there between something like purity and setting up boundaries and freedom because our society, I think, is pushing us to believe that freedom is chasing after whatever the heart desires while the scriptures argue freedom is submitting yourself to the rule of God. So there are two different perspectives, worldviews, and what we mean by the word freedom. Now, is libertarian freedom doing whatever my heart desires? Will that produce a person who pursues goodness, beauty, and truth? My experience is no. And I think that history bears this out. The more we free ourselves to kind of pursue whatever we want, the more we are ironically mastered by those desires. Rather than mastering them, they own us. And we constantly fall then into these addictions, into these patterns of behavior over and over and over again, asking the question, why? Why? But there is hope. Because while people tend toward evil... God wants a holy people. He wants a people for his own possession. He wants a people called his righteousness. Remember that? We, we talked about that uh, when we were doing the umbrella thing. We are called his righteousness. So that when the world looks at the church, they should see people wrestling after holiness, stumbling sure, but wrestling and moving forward nonetheless. And so I want to move to this verse here that I talked about earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 3, verses 17 through uh, 18, which read uh, read this. I'm in the wrong text. It says, uh, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. I want to sort of move step by step through this verse and bring forward what is available to you as a Christian in the battle against addiction. In the battle against, even if you might not want to call it addiction, you might want to call it bad habit. The, 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 you could blur the line there. But, but in the battle for purity and holiness. The first is this, and I, I want to make a point of this. The Lord is spirit and freedom. Now, this might seem like a no-dust statement, but I think it's a very important statement. Because I think we often misconceive what, we, what the Bible means when it says the Lord is spirit. We might think the Lord is spirit in the sense that God is immaterial. He's just kind of a ghostly figure floating around somewhere in a place called heaven, which we don't know where it is, right? And that might be kind of the way we think of a fuzzy image. But I want to argue that spirit is material as well. The Bible likens the spirit in John chapter 3. Jesus likens the spirit to wind, right, to air. Air has material, doesn't it? Uh, But its ability to move through into our lungs and to empower us to move forward is the play on the word that Jesus is making. He says that the wind blows wherever it wills and you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. So it is with the spirit. And here he's just using the same word because they are the same word. The spirit blows, but it doesn't just blow around us. It blows through us. 
entering us, empowering us. God is spirit, but that doesn't mean he's a ghost that's far away. or He is the wind that moves just as a wind in a gentle breeze has power to comfort. And sometimes a wind in a tornado can tear down a whole city. So God is spirit. And the spirit that is coming upon us, as we'll see in the next few points, entering us enables us for a new kind of freedom. Think about wind. Think about wind. Is wind caged or free? Free. It blows where it wills. And we don't know where the wind comes from, as it were, and we don't know where it's going. It it, it blows. And we are that people. We are the people who, through Jesus, have been made people of the Spirit, and we are like the wind in that we are now free, blown with God to new places, new adventures, new experiences. We are not shackled to desires or to addictions. We are free. Some of that is mindset. Some of that is recognizing the lie. A lot of what happens in Christianity is recognizing the truth and accepting it and denying the lie and and recognizing the lie and denying it. Recognizing the truth that you are free and that behavior that you think you need to give into, you don't. You absolutely do not because you have the spirit and the spirit is freedom. Next. We see that to be in the presence of God is to be chained, chained, changed. Strike that, reverse it. To be changed. He goes on here and says, We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We're being transformed. Notice the present tenseness of this text. He isn't saying you will be transformed. It isn't set at a future point, although obviously there is also futureness to it. But that there is a process of being transformed that is happening to you even now. He says here that uh, we are beholding the glory of the Lord, which is a bizarre thing to say, isn't it? Because the people he's writing to probably never saw Jesus. Certainly in that moment, they are not seeing Jesus. And as the letter was given around, because all of these letters, you know, they were written and they went to the church they were written to and then they were copied and sort of shared about. All of those people that read this letter were not beholding the glory of the Lord. And you here and me here today, we're not beholding the glory of the Lord. And so how is this then true? It is because we are experiencing The glory of the Lord. Not in the same way as when we will see Jesus face to face, but through the presence and power of the Spirit. Ephesians says this, Ephesians 1, 12 through 14. um, uh, 12 is the sort of beginning verse, but I'm going to start with 13 there. In him that is Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession. So until we are standing before God face to face, the Spirit is the intermediary power. It is the presence of God. It is the glory of God. It is the life of God. It is the promise that God will, as we sang this morning, guarantees the promises he has given us are true and will be fulfilled. And we can hope 
in confidence and in faith. We experience God through this Holy Spirit. Remember how Moses experienced this. This is going to be important as we move forward here. Moses is in the, you remember the burning bush scene, all that? Moses kind of is up on the hill and he sees the burning bush and he says, what in the world is that? It's a burning bush, but it's not burning. I should go and see this thing. I would run the other way, but Moses is braver than me. And he goes, and as soon as he comes within a certain amount of space of of the burning bush, what does God say? Do you remember? Take your shoes off, for where you are standing is holy ground. Was it holy before the Lord came? Was the whole mountain holy? No. It is when he came into the presence of God that suddenly the ground changed. Not because of the ground itself. Not because the ground was somehow special. But because God's presence at that place changed the quality of the area around it. We see this further on in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament as Moses asked the Lord to see him. And God says, well, you can't see me, but I'll show you the train of my robe. So there's a little piece of God, which isn't actually God himself, but the clothes, quote-unquote, you know, th- that God wore. This is the Bible trying to explain the inexplainable, and so it gets a little muddy, doesn't it? But he sees some piece of something attached to God, and it so changes him that his face is changed, and I don't know what this would even mean or look like, but his face, it says, shone. It was bright. And the people freaked. Moses came down, and his face looked like a light bulb, and they said, cover that mug up. I've been told that before, but for different reasons. This is, this is what Moses experienced. He physically was changed because he was in the presence of God. This is incredibly important. If you take this verse seriously for a moment and think about what it means to say, There is something of God, the Holy Spirit, that dwells in you. What does that make you? It makes you holy ground. It means every person who has been baptized, as we we always quote Acts 2.38, right, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every person who has entered into covenant relationship with Jesus Christ has been fundamentally changed Because now the Spirit dwells in you. And if the Spirit dwells in you, that makes you holy ground. This is important. This is incredibly important. Many verses bear this out. We see this, this, you have this kind of, you're being transformed into the same image. The same image is what? The same image is who? Jesus. You are being transformed right here, right now. Into the image of Jesus Christ himself. You are not only holy ground, but you are the imagers of God. When people see you, they see God. We have all kinds of verses that bear this out. 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 are two wonderful places um, that we can go to, as I will. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, For God's temple is holy, and you, and here he's sort of talking about the church itself, so as we've gathered together, you all, all y'all, are the temple of God. What does that make you? Holy ground. 
This has ethical implications as he pushes forward into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this plugs into, um, Laura gave some incredible statistics about internet pornography and, and how this has become such a, a, an amazing um, addiction um, and problem in our society today and how it's changed us. And so this sort of plugs into some of the things we talked about. But, but Paul then pushes this forward in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. I want you to notice why. Ask the question, why? Flee from sexual immorality, fine. Why? Every sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, and the sexually immoral person sins against what? His own or her own body. You sin against your own self. So, I mean, if you're a mean person and you're out there, like, are you punching and, and I can't think of things that we do to other people. I'm blanking. Uh, doing mean things to other people. You're sinning against others, right? That, that's external. But, but when you act sexually, you're bringing it into yourself. And what does Paul say? Does he say, well, and God's going to send you right to hell? No. Does he say, God's going to reject you forever? No, those are problems and those are things that he says elsewhere. But here he's pushing hard on this. He says what? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you are? Why should you move away from sin? Why should you steer clear of things that would be outside of the boundaries? I mean, is it because God's an, like an omnipotent killjoy who just wants you to have no fun? Is it because we just have these, he has this old set, set of standards and it just doesn't matter? It, like these, 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 these meaningless rules culturally imposed. What is the reason for it? The reason for it is this. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which makes you what? Holy ground. The Spirit is within you. And you then are not your own anymore. And here we think of Holy Week here as he ends it off. You were bought at a price. That God before had presence in the temple. He had presence among the people, but it was sealed off. It was a sealed off presence. And I was encouraging the Sunday school class that I have. I want to encourage you as well to read the first six chapters of Leviticus and then go read Hebrews. Look at what people had to do in the Old Testament to get God's presence, to get God's attention. Look at all of the different sacrifices and steps they had to go through. Why? Because God is a holy God. And if you want to have a relationship with God, then you too must be holy. But you too are not holy. And therefore, you must go through these complicated rituals to make things holy so God can come near but Holy Week, as we're talking about this week, the triumphal entry, the death and resurrection of Jesus makes something completely new. There is no barrier now between you and the presence of the living God. And because the Spirit of God is dwelling within you, you should pursue holiness with passion because you are so valuable. You are so incredibly valuable that you were bought at the highest price imaginable so that God could have a relationship with you. So why, why, Paul says, would you ever think to sink into sin? Why would you ever pursue anything less than this value that you are set at? It's immeasurable. This brings it forward a little bit more. You're the imagers of God. You think of the, uh, 
the way that um, idols worked in the Old Testament. If you had a sort of a set of gods, or even maybe if you don't know much about the Bible, that's okay. Maybe you've seen like Greek statues and you know, from Greece or Rome or whatever, these statues of their gods. The statue isn't the god, obviously. It's the image of the god. We don't, you know, know exactly what the god looks like, but this is something that, that would kind of draw our attention and help us to remember Zeus or Hermes or whatever. And so we made this statue. We made this image of God. Isn't it interesting that when God makes this gorgeous planet, you ever see those BBC World things where, they, where they've got, like, all of these, like, animals and oceans? I mean, it's a beautiful world that we have. It's a beautiful world that God has made, and he makes it. And he's got it all done. And what does God say? Well, let's make another mammal. This time we'll go biped. And, uh, you know, we'll make them a little bit smarter than horses and, and, and birds and fish because, you know, they, they can't really dig the ground or take care of things. Is that what God says? No. That should have been more emphatic, you guys. Like, that's... No! He says, let us make humans in our own image. And so God made them male and female in the image of the living God. Not only then are you the image of God on the earth, but God has uniquely created us so that we could have a relationship with him. Remember what, what God is doing um, after Adam sinned? What was he doing? Do you remember? Somebody said it. Going for a walk in the cool of the day. And he calls out and he says, Adam, where are you? I'm going for a stroll. Why don't you join me? Right? God is just, he's walking with Adam and Eve. They, they have this face-to-face relationship. And all of this within the New Testament is calling out the same thing. That God is, God is wanting to have relationship. We read this in Revelation, right? That there's going to be a moment where God is in our midst and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And we will see him face to face. In the meantime, what are you? You are the image of God on the planet and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which makes you holy ground. And so then the question, of course, follows. Why would you pursue impurity or addictions and why would you think you couldn't beat any of them if you are empowered by the creator of the universe and you have been given a a piece of his spirit and the spirit is blowing to and fro and it's including you as it goes through what could you not defeat what could you not say no to what could you not conquer with the power of the spirit at your side. Now, addictions are bad because they ruin lives. Addictions are terrible because they, they desecrate and they break down and they defile. Addictions are bad because um, they harm us and they harm everyone around us. And we all know this is true. We all know this is true. And yet, we do find it hard to say no to certain behaviors, things we do over and over and over again that we say to ourselves, man, I don't want to do that anymore. And yet we fall back again and again into that. My suggestion to you this morning is this is not necessary. That you can be free. You can break the shackles of whatever it is that is holding you back because you have the Spirit of God in you. You have the power of the living God 
through prayer. You have the people of God around you for support. You have something that is inestimably more powerful than whatever you think you can't beat. More than that. More than that. You are the temple of God. You are holy ground. You are made to be in God's presence. And so when we see temptation come our way, when we see that addiction raise its ugly, insidious head, when we feel Satan's voice at the back of our neck and we think to ourselves, man, I don't know if I can beat this, that is a lie. Not only can you beat it, but you are empowered to beat it. And not only are you empowered to beat it, you are empowered to beat it because you are currently, right now, in this room, as a Christian, holy ground. It says in 1 Corinthians, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And what do children do? They give in to every whim, right? And so you as parents are there to slap hands. Don't touch that, right? Because children just, they go wherever. And many people, whether we're talking about children or adults, continue to live in childish ways. But we who are called by the Spirit of God are called to, as Paul says here, when I became a grown-up, I set aside childish ways Because now we see in the mirror dimly, but then, then it shall be face to face. Now I know a little bit, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And so what I want you to leave with here today is this. You can defeat any enemy. You can defeat any addiction with support, with prayer, with all of these things. We are holy ground. We ought to recognize that, live up to that, embrace that truth, and proclaim it to the world so that they might see and know there is a God in our midst. If you need anything this morning, if you're wrestling with something that you can't beat, the elders will be down front and they want to pray with you. There is no reason to hide behind shame. We are all sinners. We are all in need of the grace of God. Not one person here deserves the grace of God any more than any other person. And so if you are ashamed of something, don't let that hold you back. Come, confess, be prayed over, be forgiven, be given support in your battle, in my battle, against temptation, against sin. Let's stand and worship.